Good morning, all. How are we? We good? Cannot beat the warming weather. Anybody else? I'm a new man when the sun is shining. I'm not even kidding you. I'm a different human being. I like it. So I'm so glad you all here this morning. We have the uh, distinct privilege as a body, as a family, to... Um, to have some families come forward and make the very real and heartfelt commitment of dedicating their children to the Lord, of taking a deliberate and intentional step to truly present their own hearts and their, their hearts for their children to Jesus, to, um, to say, help us. We want our children to know you, to grow up in you, we, we need the help to do this ourselves, to walk with you in such a way as to raise our children, uh, not only to fear you, but to love you. And that's, this is a very exciting, exciting day. So thank you for being a part of it. Miss Allison. Good morning. Um, we are doing a child dedication today, and um, this is my friend Anita Hickenbotham. She is in charge of our Rooted Moms. I think we've talked about that uh, ministry before, but she, I have her up here with me today because her ministry is to reach out and connect and minister to parents, to moms of children that are two and under. So this is all in her wheelhouse. Um, so... I'd like the families to come up and who are dedicating their children. So we have, like, I'll introduce you if you come up. <laughs> Adam and Andre Longstreth, and they are dedicating Emma Lynn. And Hi, Laura Thompson has Kai and Azalea. I said it right, I've been practicing all morning. And <laughs> Mark and Brittany Bechtel have Harrison down there. So in our children's ministry at Mosaic, it is our desire to be intentional in coming alongside parents with a common goal, which is to teach kids the love of Jesus and how to live like him. We are thrilled to watch these parents take this important step in their parenting journey, and we are excited to partner with them. At Mosaic, we do not practice infant baptism. We believe that baptism is a personal commitment for a later time when they can understand the meaning and make that commitment on their own. Instead, we practice child dedication. In doing so, we are thankfully recognizing God as the child's perfect and loving Heavenly Father, and that child is a precious gift from Him. It is an opportunity for the parents to make a commitment to God that they will do their best to show their child the love of the Father and to help them to learn to follow Jesus. We are, as a church family, blessing the child and making commitments to come alongside this family on their journey. I'm sorry, I was distracted by one of the children. <laughs> it was actually Mike Hirschner that was distracting me. No, I'm, I, you know, I love babies. I'm a grandpa. I'm a dad. I like babies. I look at this baby, and she looks at me. She goes, just like this. She goes. <laughs> so I smiled, and she went. She has good judgment. Right? 
did you hear what that dad just said? We will not be dedicating the long truth baby today. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. <laughs> In the scriptures, we see examples of this. We see Hannah with her son Samuel take him to the temple and dedicate him to the Lord. We see Jesus' parents take Jesus to the temple for the same purpose. Then Jesus said something really profound to his disciples. In Mark it says this. It says that people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw that the disciples had rebuked them, he was indignant, he was angry. And he said to the disciples, hey, 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 let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of heaven, just like this child, will never enter into it. And he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. I don't know about you guys, that's one of my absolute favorite pictures of Jesus in the entire, all four Gospels. There's this idea that he could love even the Longstrith baby. <laughs> With that being said, it is the parents today's desire to take this opportunity to dedicate their children to the Lord. And we have this incredible privilege as a church body to join them in this. So parents, I've got a couple things that I'm gonna ask you to respond to, if you would, that reflects your commitment. Is Laura still here? Okay, she is. <laughs> the first is this, will you receive this child with gratitude and recognize him or her as God's gift to you and your family and love him or her accordingly? Yes? All right. Audrey, you can answer. Adam, you be quiet. <laughs> Number two, will you commit to actively pursuing your own spiritual growth so that you may model before your child what it is to follow Jesus? Okay, good. Yes, you may. <laughs> okay. All right. Do you commit to finding ways to nurture your child's understanding of God's goodness, his power, love, forgiveness, and grace, in prayerful hope that one day he or she will come to follow Jesus themselves? Okay. For the extended family, um, I'll list the kids. Kai, Azalea, Emma Lynn, and Harrison also has the benefit of the influence provided by their extended families. On behalf of these parents, we are asking you to faithfully love and support these parents and to help provide an environment which this precious child can experience the love of God. If you feel able to make this commitment, please say, we will. I did. There's one other agent of influence represented here today, and that is the church family. We have the amazing privilege and responsibility to come alongside these families and to help love and nurture their children as well, but in particular to facilitate their nurturing. 
the question we have for us is this, is will we make a commitment today to provide prayer, love, and support for this family and to, and to, and to then model in our own lives the person of Jesus that they may see Christ in us and desire to follow him also? If you're able to make that commitment, we would ask you to say, I will. Wonderful. Join me in prayer, if you would. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you that you love us the way you do, that you are utterly dedicated to us in a way that is profound, Lord Jesus, that you, Lord God, know us from the time of our conception, that you knit us together in our mother's womb. You meet us there in the secret place. You form us and shape us. You know us so well that before a word comes off our tongue, Lord God, as we age, as we grow, you know what it is. So we thank you for loving us that well, that intimately, that personally. And pray, Lord God, for each one of these children, that as they are known by you, that they would come to know you. I pray for the parents that you would enable them to love their children and to walk with you in a way that demonstrates your grace. And pray, Father, that each one of them, both in individually and with their, with their extended family, would love well and deeply and consistently and persistently. And Father, I pray for us as a church that we would offer everything we can for the benefit, Lord God, of these families and these children. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Give these families a hand if you would, please. Now, oh, there it is. I lost my Bible. So it's good to see you all this morning. Thank you for participating in that. My goal, my hope is, frankly, oh, it's all right, okay. It's funny, last week somebody threw an umbrella in the aisle. Same exact way, same exact time. So, oh, I love the voices of children singing as they do. Oh, little bugger. Oh, yeah. He says, see you. He was pouting at me the entire time. I feel very unwelcome. What was that? I do. I always need a hug. Where are my grandchildren when I need them? So it's interesting, you know, I just said, um, uh, feel very unwelcome. Ironically, during the first service, one of the things we talked about, you heard me pray, what it is, what it is, what a child is, right? A child is known by God before the child is ever dreamed of by the parent. That we exist in the heart of God and the God uh, looks forward to our being made. We, 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 we need to remember, God is before all time and he's, he's always existed, he always will exist. And there's nothing that happens that's outside his purview, outside his knowing, and that includes each one of us. And so that God would know us and would, begin to, would meet us in that secret place and would knit us together and would speak to us is an astounding thing. That he would give us life at all is an amazing thing. That we breathe, we exist because God desired us. And what he desires, frankly, is our relationship and a relationship with us. You know, if, if this is your first time at Mosaic, you haven't been here in a little while, um, I'm Tony, by the way. I'm one of the guys here. 
And one of the things that we believe is so incredibly true is that each one of us has been, just as these, childhood, these children have been, each one of us have been uniquely made. And we've been made deliberately and intentionally by God. And that he not only knit us together in making us in our mother's womb, but now in Christ Jesus, he's, created, he's creating us in Jesus to be like Jesus. And that tapestry is, continued, is, is a continual um, weaving of who we are and who he's making us to be in him. In that, what his desire is, is that, as, that he would find a home in us. Let me ask this question real quick. How many here feel like they have the gift of hospitality? The gift of hospitality. Got, ooh, many more in the first service. You would not feel welcome in the first service. The first service is like, no. I ain't got that, right? I got none of that, right? Now, the reason I go to hospitality is this. When we think about the idea of being made and shaped by God and known by God and called by God, what God is doing is he's not merely having made us for his delight in giving us life, but his greatest desire is that we would come to know him as to be able to dwell with him, to be able to experiences hospitality. What God wants more than anything is to draw us to himself in such a way that we would have both peace and we would recognize the life we have in him by grace and that we would rest in that truth, that God welcomes us and we are welcome there. Now this came out of nowhere in the first service, I gotta be honest with you. This is not what I intended to teach on this morning. But for whatever reason, I felt like as we continue to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, and if you've not been here, we'll catch you up. You know, we've been working through what it is to be effective in our relationship with Jesus. What is it to be effective in any relationship? What is it to be effective? Is it not to know and to know deeply and to know well enough that you, you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a familiarity and there's a comfort level and there's a sense of peace when you're together. And, and even when a relationship is dented or cracked or breached, the, the dis-ease causes us to want to be reconciled and to be restored to that person. And then we'll go through what, it, what we need to do to repair that relationship. That's an effective relationship. That's a relationship where once we've been drawn into it and that love has been exchanged and we have this commitment to one another, we're willing to go through just about anything to repair it even losing our own dignity in the process. And the hope is that in the context of that sphere, that life, that relationship, there would be a true sense of hospitality. Now, what is hospitality? It's not just having someone in your house. I can have a refrigerated repairman in my house, and although certainly he's welcome in my house and I'm gonna treat him kindly in my house, what I haven't done necessarily is invited him into my home. I've not necessarily opened myself up as to invite him into my life. True hospitality is the idea that someone is not merely in my house, but they're in my home. And that that home reflects my life and that life is a life of welcoming and generosity and, and this idea of truly receiving the peace and the grace of the host. So why do I say that? I say that because an effective relationship in Christ does two things. Certainly it, it experiences the idea that God desires to be hospitable to me, to invite me into his life and home.
But the other is that I remain in my walk in such a way that he always feels at home in me. See, when I come to Christ and I receive from him what he offers, and that is life eternal, forgiveness of sins, and the transformation of my heart. And, but more than that, it's then the indwelling of his spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit resides in me. And Jesus says something really fantastic. Once you're in this relationship and you've received what I offer, nobody can take that from you. Nobody can snatch us from his hands. Nobody can, nobody, he says, in fact, that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Nothing, nothing, not even death can do that. And so we have this incredible relationship with God in Christ. And his, what he's doing is he's opening his home to us and eventually opening his home to the degree that for eternity we will reside in, with him and in him in such a way as to be absorbed into his glory. It's remaining individual and dignified as the unique people that we've been made, we will be brought together in him in a way that is intimate and passionate and gracious and full of peace. That's an amazing thought. Now, in the meantime, from the time we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit to the time we reach God's home and we're invited intimately into that moment, he resides in us. And the question we have to ask ourselves in regard to the effectiveness of this relationship is, are we being hospitable? Because it's one thing for us to have the Holy Spirit in our house. It's another thing altogether that once he's in our house, that we invite him into our lives so that he feels at home. We have to ask ourselves the question on a fairly regular basis, Jesus, do you feel at home with me today? Do you feel at home in me today? Is there a grace and peace and abundance in such a way that this wonderful give and take, this reciprocal relationship inside of me is effective? And I'm receiving from you life as I give to you my life and I open my life to you in such a way as to not only have you housed in me, but at home in me. This is really profound. So as we talk about 2 Peter chapter 1, and we talk the idea, about the idea of having an effective relationship in Christ, it has to do with the fact that I would, I would create an environment where Jesus doesn't merely live in one of the rooms in my heart, but he has permission to move through the home and to be at home in my home and to be a welcome guest in my home. So that when we sit and eat, there's peace. So which takes me to a whole other thing. Anyone here ever, ever have to eat eat a meal with an adversary or somebody you're in conflict with? Especially if you're the source of the conflict. Anybody, 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 anybody married? And that happens sometimes. Now to me, I, you can put the best meal in the world. You could go find the, the best meal in any particular city and put it on a table in front of me. And if for whatever reason, the person sitting across from me sharing that meal with me is somebody I'm in, you know, in conflict with, that meal takes like gruel. Doesn't matter who cooked it, doesn't matter what, it's gruel. It is just, and I can't even eat it. What do you, you play with it, right? You move it around on your plate, you, you, you taste it and you go, I bet, and it just, ah, doesn't, just doesn't sit well. Uh, sometimes we're like that with Jesus. There are times in our lives when our relationship has been rendered ineffective and we know to some degree there's some discomfort between me and him and his deep desire is to come in and eat with me. But my life is a bit of a shambles or even a little bit of a shamble. 
And it's not that Jesus is judging me or angry with me or anything of the sort. It's that he wants peace with me and he wants to bring grace to me. He wants life with me. And you know what he loves to do? He loves to eat with me. And he's just waiting for me to be at peace with him. He's waiting to, to be made to feel as though he's a welcome guest in my home, not just in my house. And so being effective in Christ means working, living in such a way as to create an environment that gives Jesus permission to be at peace in my presence. But even more so that I would now be at peace in his presence. And the two of us would eat together in such a way as to truly enjoy the meal. And there's great hospitality involved. And you're thinking to yourself, what in the world are you talking about? I'm going to use Jesus' own words in two different places to tell us how, how desperately he longs to just be at home, to give us peace, to be at peace with us, and that our relationship would be effective enough that we would enjoy that meal together. Because how we enjoy that meal determines whether or not I can enjoy a meal with you effectively. So let's go. Let's go to, well, one of the passages, I, I, I'm going to have to quote it because I can't remember what the address was and I got wrapped up in the child dedication and so I forgot to look it up. So please forgive me. It's somewhere in John, might be 16. If you want to look it up and yell it out for me, is when Jesus says, now Jesus, Jesus talks about his love language being obedience. And in, a couple, in two or three different places, he goes, listen, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. And you go, all right, okay, cool. Uh, obedience. But there's one spot where he talks about it a little more intimately than this. And what he's doing is he's actually telling us the context of the relationship and what it is, what it is, the benefit is of hospitality to Jesus by obedience. And this is when he says this. The first half of the verse says this. The person, the man or woman who loves me is the one who has my commands and obeys them. Now we're going to stop right there because that's the general theme that Jesus speaks of almost through the entire gospel of John. That his, he gives us his commands and the proof of our love is that we obey them. And you're going, oh, what that word obey, I don't like it very much. Well, no, I get it because it's, it seems like a harsh word. Doesn't it obey? You got to obey me. But that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is if you trust me, if you know that I love you, and you're in the process, listen to the way I'm saying this, please. You're in the process of receiving that love. In the process. Why do I say process? It's like any other relationship. I only can trust Jesus this much when I meet him. Not because Jesus isn't trustworthy, but because my heart has difficulty trusting. And so the process of learning to love Jesus is just that. It's a process. And so if you're in the process of learning to receive from Jesus his love, and part of it is because you just, you just don't trust him to the degree you would like to, or you're learning to trust him, or over time you're beginning to trust him, understand that this is, that's part of the walk. We're all works in progress. Our relationships are all in process, and love is a process. Deep, devoted, committed reciprocal love where we entrust ourselves to another person takes a long time to learn to trust. And that includes God. You know what God isn't? Mad at you for that. He's not disappointed in you for that. He's not upset with you. He's not, no, no. He knows our heart. So well, the psalmist says, the psalmist says this, he knows what you're made of, that you've been crafted from dust. Because he knows what you're made of. 
he treats you with compassion. He recognizes your frailty. He recognizes your fickleness. He recognizes how difficult it is to trust. And so Jesus is saying, if you love me, obey me. If the person who has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me. In other words, they've come to know him, and in coming to know him, they're learning to love him. They're receiving his love, and in that reciprocal give and take of love, where we're in the process of learning how to love and to receive his love, we see that his commands are actually life-giving, and so we entrust ourselves to Jesus to the degree that when I receive this command, I'm willing to test the command and obey the command in order to work out my love. That's phenomenal. So if we can approach God's commands with this idea that they're genuinely spoken to give us life and instruction about life and correction of life and more instructions to life and, and, and then to, as an expression of his affection and love for us and his desire to, to raise us up. If we will approach his word that way, we look at them in a completely different fashion. And when we realize, when he says this, when he says the man, who, the man or woman who has my commands and does them is the one who loves me, that's wonderful in and of itself. But here's what the second half says, and this is why it becomes so important. You know what the second half of this verse talks about? It says, if the, the man or the woman who has my commands and does them is the one who loves me, and when he loves me, when we see that, when we watch him obey, my father and I will come and make our abode in them. We will come and live in them. We will come and reside in them. My father and I will see a house that's receptive and hospitable. And we recognize that by you trusting me enough to receive my love and to love me back. And now I know I'm coming into a home where I am, listen, where I'm welcome. And so when God touches our hearts in order to, to draw us into relationship, what he's doing is he's, he's working with us to create an environment where he is a welcome guest. That he's not just in our house, but he's a welcome guest in our home. And we begin, we begin to crack our life open to invite him deeper and deeper into our lives as we learn to love him more and more and we learn to trust his love more and more. Isn't that phenomenal? God knows us that well, that deeply. He's that concerned for us, and he wants that desperately to have that kind of relationship with us. And so he says, the person who has my commands, and he does them, she does them, this is the one we will come in and live with. They have received our love. They trust us now, and they follow. And now we're of one spirit, one purpose, one mind, and we're moving forward together. I'm welcome there. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, that's awesome. What does that have to do with anything? Well, that's how God establishes his relationship in us. He touches our heart in such a way as to remind us that we've been made by him. He delights in us. He loves us. He wants to forgive us. He's offered his son on our behalf. If we will recognize that truth and we receive what Jesus offers, and that's life eternal through the forgiveness of sins, and then having God then placed in us and dwelled in us, he says, listen, the first command is recognize who my son is. And obey, it's just... just Surrender to him. That's the first command. And at that moment, he does. He goes right into it. He's there. He's there. He's there. That's phenomenal. But there's another part of this. If those of us in this room, for the most part, and, and we could be, listen, we're all over the map in this room. Some of us have been walking with Jesus forever. It's seemingly forever. Right, so some of us, has anyone here been a Christian longer than six, 60 years or longer? Would you raise your hand for me? 
60 years, 50 years, 50 years, I got 50 in the back, got a 50 over here. Anybody else, anybody else got, how many years, Shirley? How many? 66? Man! How many years? 50 years. How many? How many years? Eighty years? Ridiculous? Phenomenal? I have no idea where I was going to be. That stunned me so badly I forgot where I was going with that. Rob, any thoughts? Do you know where I was going with this? What? All right, so God establishes a relationship. We receive that. The, that first step of obedience is, is recognizing who Jesus is and surrendering to him. From that point forward, the, the Holy Spirit indwells us. 84 years, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and, we, and he, he, he's, he lives in our house. The question we have to ask ourselves as we walk with Christ, especially those of us who are second, third, fourth generation Christians, or we've been walking with Jesus for 80 years, we need to recognize this truth. There are times in our life, if we're not careful, we've heard about grace and mercy and God's love and the love of Jesus so much. I'm gonna use a very common term right now. We're all gonna cringe, you ready? Very often we've been inoculated to the truth of God. We've been inoculated to the recognition of his mercy. We've been inoculated to the recognition of his grace. We've been inoculated to the idea that I desperately needed his mercy and I've completely forgotten what it was to not be loved, or to be outside, I've always been loved, but to be outside of that love. If we are not in consistent view of God's mercy and the recognition of our desperate need for grace, we can quickly become inoculated to the gospel itself. And when that happens, listen to me, when that happens, we become inhospitable to Jesus. Not that he isn't in our house, he'll never be removed from our house but he might not feel at home. Our relationship can be breached. So there's something to be said about this. As, we want to, as, we, as Jesus walks with us, he wants to walk with us, with us effectively. I need you to turn to Revelation chapter three, if you would. And we're gonna look at, so Jesus said these wonderful words. He said, the person who has my commands and does them, is the, he's the one my father and I will come and dwell in. We're gonna come and make our home there. We're gonna make our abode there. And think about that for a minute. We, in our soul, in our hearts, we have this place that God had actually made to be his home. It's up to us to hand him the key to unlock it, to to give him permission to come in. Will we receive from him the grace that he offers and the life that comes with it? Will we give him, will we allow him to make that space home for him? That we would dwell there together. That's where salvation comes. But the effectiveness of our walk has to do with whether or not we remain hospitable. There's a difference between him being in our house and being at home. So I'm gonna use a verse that, our, that a saintly brother used for evangelism, which is perfectly fine, but that was not originally intended to be evangelistic. Because it's actually spoken to God's children who somehow have made Jesus home inhospitable that he would be in the house, but not feel at home. 
And this is the warning about being ineffective. And this is the remedy to become effective. So here we go. We're in Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to pray again. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would just guide us in it. And that we, as we, as we sense your presence, as we receive your word, that you, we would, wow, we'd be, we'd, we'd be hospitable. That our houses, the house of our heart would not be the place in which you happen to be, but in fact, the environment would be such that you are utterly welcome and the relationship is more and more effective. So Father, just guide us on this path. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So here we go, you ready? So we're in Revelation chapter three and this is now, this is Jesus speaking now in Revelation and what he's done is he's writing a letter making a statement to a group of Christians. This is not to people who don't know God. This is to people who have God in their house. Look what it says. So it's to the angel of the church and no, I'm sorry, wrong one. Starting at verse 14. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these, write this, please. It says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is from Jesus himself. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. Now, I, w- I want to stop there for a minute, because we, we talk a lot about, well, what does it mean to be hot and cold? You know, to the, the most basic expression of this would be this, that at least that we're, we're passionate on one end of the spectrum or the other, so at least there's something to work with. Because as he goes on to say, but you're lukewarm, and I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, the idea is that, that that which is lukewarm, that which is noncommittal to either side, that which lacks passion in any way, whether it be for or against, lukewarm can't be worked with. At least passion on both ends of the spectrum can be worked with. But if you're lukewarm, it's just like, blah, blah. You know, and he says, this, that, that, he says, that's so vile to me, and it's so worthless to me, I, I will spew that out. So that's the traditional expression of that, and it's, it's true. But I'm going to use a little different application this time. And I, because, because what he does is, he, let's read the whole text, because I want you to see, I'm, I want you to see the connection that I'm going to make. So look what it says. It says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true, the, wit, the faithful and true witness, the rule of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot, nor co- cold, nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to, now the, end, the old NIV says spit. The, the word is much stronger than that. The word means to violently spew or to vomit. Okay, so this is, a, this is a wretched thing. This is causing Jesus to wretch. So look what it says. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spew you from my mouth. You say, now listen, listen. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. In other words, we've been, listen, we've been inoculated. We have so much in the way of resources. We have so much in the way of tradition. We have so much in the way of having heard and heard again and heard again. We have so much in regard to knowledge and theology and academia. We have so much in regard to, we have so much that we look at our lives and we go, ah, I'm rich. I don't need anything. 
But the moment we are there, we inoculate ourselves from God. We don't recognize our perpetual need for mercy and his grace. And we begin to recognize, we begin to believe that our security and our welfare is based on what we have, not whose we are. This is a really important moment because we're sitting in a place and time where we're rich in more ways than we can count. We have little need, little need. And that's not just material, that's also the word of God. That's also churches aplenty. It's also knowledge. And so if we're not careful, we become inoculated and our hearts begin to be, look what it says, I don't need a thing. Look what it goes on to say. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, he says. And you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize, this is God saying, listen, whoa, hold it, hold it, hold it. You don't realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor. You're blind and you're naked. In other words, you, my children, who are children of a king, who have had, you, have, have had me dwell in your home, have now made me feel as though I'm not even welcome in your house. That doesn't mean he's left the house. Oh, now you're smiling. That doesn't mean he's left the house. He's promised to not leave the house. But the issue is, is that there's now this sense of not being needed. There's now this sense of, of this. And you don't realize, regardless of everything that you have, In spite of all of that, you're really wretched and poor. You desperately need me. Desperately. In other words, listen, we've been deceived. The worst kind of deception is self-deception. And God warned us, said your heart, it's deceitful above all else. And there is no remedy. The only remedy to a deceptive heart is the surrender of that deceptive heart to the truth of Christ, period. And that begins when we recognize the need for mercy, when we realize that all we have is just that. It's just what we have. It's not who we are. It's not whose we are. And neither is it a measure of the effectiveness of my life with Christ. See, the Pharisees got in trouble for this. They believed their wealth was proof of God's favor. What did Jesus have to say to the Pharisees? There's no one that Jesus tore up like he did the Pharisees. It was because they were utterly self-deceived. And what he's warning the church about is this. He says, listen, I have come. I have come to put my house, not only to live in your house, but to be at home in your life. And we keep piling stuff on and thinking we have all this. Look what he goes on to say here. So so these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich and I've acquired wealth and I, I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. You have rendered yourself ineffective in your relationship with me. I 
I counsel you now. I instruct you now. I'm trying to correct you now. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. You think you're rich? No. It is not the things of this world that make you rich. It is the gold of the, of the, royal, the, the royalty of the kingdom of heaven. That which you receive from me that makes you rich. Look what is going on. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. In other words, receive again from me and walk with me in righteousness and allow that to be the expression of your purity, the expression of your rightness with me. He goes on to say, put salve on your eyes so that you can truly see, so that you can see rightly, so you can get past the deception. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love. Look, you know what's interesting? He's saying those whom I love. He's not saying those who love me. Now, it's those who have loved me. If we were to go back to Revelation chapter 2 in his letter to the, to the Ephesians, he talks about six or seven great things that the Ephesians were doing. But he says, but I have this one thing against you. Listen to me. You've left your first love. You don't love me like you did at first. Go back and love me the way you did before. So what Jesus is declaring here is his faithfulness to his brothers and sisters in him. He's, he's right now going to declare to us that you loved me once. You have fallen in love with what you know and what you have and what you've been inoculated by. But I'm telling you, I still love you. And I'm going to show you how much I love you. And I'm going to do that by doing this. Look what he says now in verse 19. It says, those whom I, what's it say? Those whom I love, I do What? I rebuke and I discipline. In other words, when I see their deception, when I see their lives becoming ineffective, when all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I, I only feel like somebody who's allowed in your house and not welcome in the home. He said, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to rebuke you. And I'm going to correct you. And I'm going to instruct you. And I'm going to discipline you. Why? Not because I'm mean, not because I want you to be harmed, but exactly the exact opposite. I love you, and I don't want to see harm come to you. Look at what he goes on to say. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Recognize the truth. See that you've been deceived. Look to me and be restored. That's what the word repent means, to be restored to go back to, to return to the right path. So says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I, listen, oh, here it is, ready? This is not to people who don't know Jesus. This is to people who do know Jesus and who, for whatever reason, might have him living in their house but has not, have not made him feel at home. Look what it says. If anyone here, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. He says, here I am, exclamation point. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. Yes. I stand in the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with them. 
will enjoy a meal together. I will restore your peace. I will be at home. I will be at home. Well, if I take this band, go ahead and get in place if you would, please. If I take this back up to the first text, you're neither hot nor cold. Let's put it in the context of the home for a moment. If I, for whatever reason, have somebody outside my house and they're doing landscaping for me and it's 95 degrees and humid as it can be in July, and I realize that they're beginning to wilt under the, under the oppressive heat and they could use some refreshment, you know what I do? I make sure I go in the house and I turn the heat up as high as I can and I invite them in. No, no. In other words, I cool the environment and I create a space of refreshment and I allow them to cool. You're neither cold, but neither are you hot. If I have somebody who's come and they're shoveling the snow off my, off my sidewalks and they've, they've shoveled my driveway for me and it's, you know, wind chill of 20 below and I see that they're freezing, what do I do? Do I turn the air conditioning on and have them come into the home? No. I turn the heat up, I get a blanket ready and some hot chocolate and I say, come, be seated. Warm up. So as much as I think Jesus is trying to say to us, listen, be, listen, be for or against passionately so at least I have something to work with, I think because he uses the home later, I wonder if it isn't, what are you creating in regard to environment that I might be welcome? And that this time together might be refreshing and warming and helpful. Will you make me feel at home? Well, how do we make him feel at home? According to Ephesians, or excuse me, the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation 2, is the same way we, he got in the home to begin with. See the person who has my commands and, and does them? See, that's the one who loves me. And I feel at home. We're walking stride, in stride, hand in hand, arm in arm, in lockstep. We're at peace. I feel at home here. I'm welcome. Mm. Isn't that remarkable? It is not enough to have God live in our house. It's not. It's not. It is ours to make every effort to make him feel at home. He's welcome. This is a process. This takes time and trust. And here's another thing that I want to say out loud. God knows, too, that not only does it take time to grow in trust, but sometimes our trust gets dented. You ever been in a relationship where one side or the other has done something and it's caused trust to kind of take two or three steps back? And in order to restore the relationship to where it once was, you've got to take the time to rebuild the trust? See, God knows that, too. Not only is he hard to trust at all, and then he's hard to grow in trust, but there are times that for whatever reason, life has dealt us some things, and we feel like maybe God doesn't care, or God wasn't present, or God, and he's going, oh, I was, but I get it, I do. And I realize the frailty of your heart. (laughs) And I realize the frailty of trust. And he's watching us take two or three steps back, and he's willing to wait to restore the trust, to rebuild the trust.
Anyone ever experienced that in a relationship here? Yeah? Earthly expression of a kingdom truth. Our God is that gracious, that merciful, that kind, that loving, that patient. He's ridiculous. He's always waiting. He's always standing at the door knocking. He's always calling out to us. He's always saying to us, if you'll just hear me, if you'll just hear me, if you'll just hear me, open the door. I want to eat with you. I want to be at home with you. So when Peter says his divine nature has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and this is an expression of his abundant grace and peace, this is what he's speaking of. And this is the privilege we have to restore and to maintain our hospitality. To not just have him in our house, but to invite him into our home and to sit with him and eat in peace. Amen? Yeah. Let's stand and sing.